I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking, no issue five. This is the zine scene, Alien Worlds. So we've done a number of zine scene episodes so far, and I finally, when I finally completed my collection of Alien Worlds magazine, I knew we'd be doing another one. If it hasn't occurred to you yet, I'll just come out with a confession. I'm a magazine guy. Always have been. Their structure suits my attention span. Their format is resistant to power or internet outages. They're great. I realize I'm out of step with the times, and I've I've got to admit, I even get most of my magazines these days on my iPad. And I acknowledge that print periodicals are maybe dying, if not quite dead. But I love the things. And Alien Worlds was a great example of why... I loved them, and it combined my love of UFOs and my love of magazines into one very nearly perfect package. Alien Worlds ran for four issues in 2008. It was the brainchild of Stuart Miller, a native of the United Kingdom who had held a long interest in the UFO field. He'd produced an online magazine and website called UFO Review. It was great, and I'm not just saying that because he published something I wrote one time. Miller's webzine presented information and interviews on ufology from a variety of perspectives, but was never overly dogmatic about pushing a solution to the whole mystery. This broad-minded approach would continue when he introduced Alien Worlds. Before we get into the substance of Alien Worlds, of these issues that I have, um, just a few words about the format and similar things. It was a large format magazine, guesstimating, based on a piece of regular letter-sized paper, because I'm too lazy to get a ruler. It was about 8 by 12 inches in dimension and ran usually to between 80 and 90 pages, glossy and full color throughout, about an inch taller than the issue of, what is this, uh, Road and Track that I have sitting here on my desk. The covers were busy. You can see from the artwork for this episode on the website that the cover art for the magazine is is perhaps a bit much and is certainly my least favorite thing about the magazine. Alien Worlds, the the title, is presented um, in a font that looks to be straight from one of those 1001 Awesome Fonts CD-ROMs that people like me used to buy too many of. The artwork itself is digital. There are only photographs on the cover of the fourth and final issue, and those are tiny thumbnail-sized things. The artwork consists of aliens, UFOs, and other sort of sci-fi-looking elements. The covers, in addition to the lurid and eye-catching artwork, contain a lot of text. Along the left side is a rundown of the major stories, and in a banner across the bottom is a sort of summary of other features, often abbreviated to such a degree that a casual browser at the bookstore would be unsure of what they might be getting. For example, On the cover of the first issue, there is this bullet-pointed item on the bottom banner. Quote, Serpo slash UFO hoaxes slash Mars Phoenix slash Glissy 561. End quote. I mean, I recognize the words, but beyond that, I'm not entirely sure what that is all about. One last thing about the cover. 
Below the Alien Worlds logo is a call-out box with the subtitle, The Search for Extraterrestrial Life. So that, uh, along with the title of the magazine, gives you an idea of the angle. This is going to be space stuff, by and large. I do have a final, uh, a final pet peeve. Um, in that little call-out box, extraterrestrial is spelled as two words. Ugh. Some notes on the design of the interior. It's busy, like really busy. The print is tiny and occasionally is prevent uh, is presented in a way that's very difficult to read. Lots of white type on dark background or colored text on contrasting backgrounds that don't quite contrast enough. They don't quite work. In the States, at least, the magazine retailed for $10.99 per issue, which was on par with other magazines of similar size that were imported from the UK at the time that I would buy. I purchased issues one and three from my local Barnes & Noble bookstore when they were available. Since I didn't buy numbers two and four on the newsstand, I suspect that distribution might have been hit or miss, something I was pretty used to with magazines from overseas. So that's some background and visual stuff. What about the content? The magazine had some particular goals and focus. And the best way to summarize this is from an article called About Alien Worlds from the magazine's website. Uh, the website is now only accessible through the Wayback Machine from the Internet Archive. In this piece, Stuart Miller uh, says, quote, It still continues to surprise me that there are many people who have a deep interest in UFOs, but not the slightest care in the world as to whether extraterrestrial life exists or not. That might sound like a ridiculous contradiction, but people are attracted to the subject for many different reasons. And yet, he continues, it is obvious that any immediate progress in this field is going to come from the direction of spaceflight or astronomy. Comfortably within the next decade, we will know for sure whether life exists on our planetary neighbors. When we find it, it may not look pretty or be capable of doing very much, and it might only be visible under a microscope, but it's as much about establishing the principle as anything else, end quote. So from this, we can conclude that Alien Worlds was going to have a touch of science to it. It wasn't strictly aliens and weird stuff or claims of aliens and weird stuff. And I think that was a smart approach. I mean, there were already English language magazines on both sides of the pond that covered the generic UFO beat. Miller also said, that the magazine would have a focus on, quote, the long-term future of mankind on Earth. This is another interesting angle that we'd see play out in several articles over the magazine's four-issue life. So, let's look at issue one. Uh, what I've done to keep this episode from going on forever, uh, because the zine scene ones, if I'm not careful, they can get very, very long. So this one, this episode, as you've seen from the runtime, is going to be one of our more compact uh, episodes um, to keep things sort of moving. So what I've done is I've chosen a couple features in each issue that give an idea of both the magazine and kind of the state of ufology at the time, what some of the big stories were, at least from Stuart Miller's point of view. And full disclosure, one of the selling points of this magazine for me was that my pal Paul Kimball had a column in it. It also regularly featured Nick Redfern, who I like, and the first issue featured an interview with Mac Tonys, who was developing his crypto-terrestrial notion at the time. So this was a magazine that particularly appealed to me for those reasons, as well as for its general UFO-ness. So let's start there. The interviews in Alien Worlds were the um, question in bold print with the answer following style, rather than, I don't know what you'd call it, 
essay-like interviews, I guess. In this interview, Tonys gives a pretty thorough overview of his theory in response to the question, for the benefit of our readers who may not be familiar with the recent public debate, and by the time this is published, it will be a long-forgotten memory anyway, but what exactly are crypto-terrestrials? I've got to admit, I'm not sure exactly what specific debate Miller means here. Um, on Mac Tony's blog, which you can still access at posthumanblues.blogspot.com, we see that throughout 2007, when this interview was probably conducted, Tony's had been developing his ideas on the crypto-terrestrials and had been doing some radio and podcast interviews discussing it. These ideas had attracted some detractors, as most ideas do, but um, I don't know why, if he's just talking about a debate over the general notion of crypto-terrestrials, why Miller thought that this debate would be gone by the time um, the magazine was published. Anyway, this was uh, Tony's response and how he describes the notion in response to that rather long meandering question. My personal take on crypto-terrestrials is that that is the word I've been using to describe a physical flesh and blood race here on Earth. In other words, I'm not talking about multidimensional beings like Jacques Vallée has talked about, very intelligently by the way. I'm not talking about ultra-terrestrials like John Keel, where they come from some other on super spectrum of consciousness. In other words, this isn't an occult notion to me. This is a very empirical idea, at least that's how I'm approaching it. That we're sharing the planet with an offshoot of the human species as we're familiar with it, and that this offshoot has developed a very secretive approach to dealing with the world, and has very definite agendas as far as we're concerned. Being numerically superior and controlling a great deal of the planet's resources as we do, in a sense, means they depend on us. But they are not us at least as we're familiar with the concept of us. They're another aspect of us, perhaps. The word crypto-terrestrial is unique to me, and I think it's kind of a catchy word, although I didn't actually come up with it. Someone at my blog suggested it. Tony's also describes something of how he perceives the relationship between our species and theirs to sort of be. In response to the question, you said that cryptos depend on us, how would that work? I have this feeling from speaking with one witness who has actually met a small group of these little people. I think of them as people, as society, if that word is applicable and functions, and in the case of my friend who is privileged to meet some of these beings, they are very human-looking. They are very small. In his particular case, they passed for human or attempted to. They passed for children, and they looked kind of hobo-like in existence. We're dealing with a species that is essentially human in many respects and is numerically inferior to us. We've taken a very overt and very intrusive approach to natural resources while these people are living a rather marginal existence, kind of on the fringes of human perception, and I think they like it that way, or at least they're forced to live that way. I think they need us for a variety of reasons. I think they're concerned about us, specifically if you look at the wave of encounters that followed World War II, they were numerous. So in that sense, at the very least, they are concerned about what we do and are keeping a close watch on it, and I think that might offer an explanation for some UFO activity. Speaking of controversial ideas, issue one also features Nick Redfern following up on his theories put forth in his 2005 book, Body Snatchers in the Desert, about the Roswell incident being the result of human experimentation by the U.S. government rather than anything extraterrestrial. We will, of course, cover this in depth if I ever get desperate enough to do a Roswell episode. We also have Nick Pope, who, I, I think this is the case, used to work for the UK's Ministry of Defense looking at UFO cases, uh, as he will constantly remind anybody who gives him the opportunity to. 
Pope is talking in this issue about the release of information about Project Condine, a British defense initiative to study UFOs. The paperwork, the classified paperwork in 2008, well, 2007, 2008, was declassified and released to the public, and, and UFO people were just pouring over these documents. So Pope actually is able to talk about something he might know something about with this back in 2008. And we'll probably talk about this at a later date, an interview with Bill Ryan about Project Serpo. Yes, there's going to have to be a Project Serpo episode at some point. Uh, not to get into Project Serpo too much, but there were some documents released on the internet back in uh, the early 2000s, which were basically supposed to be the true, honest account of how we were involved in an exchange program with aliens. We sent them some of our people. They sent us some of their people. And these documents were released through shadowy means. And, and they had to be produced, reproduced in exactly the right format and everything. And it was, it was, it was, a, huge, it was a huge mess, but it's, it's a lot of fun. This issue also has some sciencey stuff. There's an article uh, by microbiologist Charles Cockrell on the means or, or possibility of, of human life surviving on other planets. The news section was mostly made up of space science and technology news. And there's an interview with Ian Morrison, the director of the Jodrell Bank Observatory, about SETI. Paul Kimball's regular column, Above and Beyond, in this first issue is headed, Why Ufology Needs a Barack Obama which may have been the most early 2008 title for anything ever. The upshot of the argument, by the way, which, which I agree with, is that ufology required, quote, a relatively new voice with a relatively fresh perspective who understands how the world works these days and what people are looking for and speaks in a way that is inspiring as opposed to divisive. Well, clearly, um, Paul's wishes were, uh, were, were fulfilled when Tom DeLonge showed up, right? We'll get to issues two, three, and four in a bit, but first, some announcements. Next time, new information has come to light. Well, it, it's come to me anyway, about Frank Strange's and what the FBI thought of him. So we'll be revisiting old Frank. Also, I'm going to be presenting at this year's Strange Realities Conference, which will be taking place entirely online, September 25th, 26th, and 27th. I believe I'm speaking on the 25th, which is a Friday. Go to strangerealities.com to check it out. Many great speakers are going to be part of this event, so it should be a good one. You can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. Thanks very much to those who've donated in the past. It's very much appreciated. We are on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, or you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can contact us by post at Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. The Saucer Life is available anywhere you can find podcasts and two or three places where you can't. Okay, issue two continues the zine's mission of blending the latest UFO ideas with space science and has articles on the potential for extraterrestrial mining, then recent revelations about the end of the Neanderthals, might it have been cannibalism, as well as news of new fossil discoveries. On the UFO front, Nick Redfern is back talking about government surveillance of UFO researchers, and Paul Kimball's Above and Beyond column is about, quote, ufology's two biggest problems, the Condon effect and Roswellism. Rightly, in my opinion, he points to the Condon study and report as the watershed event that relegated ufology to the relative fringes. Yes, we'll probably do an episode on it at some point. 
There are two features in the second issue that stuck out to me. The first is an interview with Paul Devereaux, who is not really a UFO guy, but according to his website, focuses on, quote, archaeoacoustics, which is the study of sound at ancient places, ancient and traditional lifeways, the anthropology and archaeology of consciousness, sacred sites and landscapes, general consciousness studies, including psi phenomenon, and unusual geophysical events. I first heard of Devereaux in something written by comic book writer and novelist Warren Ellis, and it was about the archaeoacoustic stuff. So I was really excited that he appeared here. This is one of the issues I just got in the last month or so, so I didn't know that Miller had interviewed him. One of Devereaux's books had been about examining UFO sightings from the perspective of earth lights and other bizarre atmospheric phenomenon. Or phenomena. I guess. You must remember that it's only 10 years ago that things like elves and sprites, huge energy events in the upper atmosphere, were discovered. And some of these things are miles across. So there are phenomena, terrestrial, atmospheric, telluric, that are going on that we are only just discovering still. To me, Earth is an identified flying object in the universe, but we haven't worked out all the controls on it yet. Things like global warming show just how out of touch with our habitat we really are. Devereaux also takes some pot shots at the extraterrestrial hypothesis. This is the thing that bores me about the extraterrestrial hypothesis. It's so clunky. It's so 20th century. It's so small an idea, whereas I think we're dealing with something vastly more complex and a much, much deeper mystery that might ultimately alienate the whole level of reality around us. I think they are, if you like, intrusions that tell us as much about the state of being and reality, which we think is normal. I think it's like synchronicity. These little glitches in this otherwise perfect virtual program we call reality. There's also a fascinating analysis of the work of Whitley Strieber by an author writing as Aeolus Kephas, titled Through a Fractured Glass Darkly. Will the real Whitley Strieber please stand up? This is a complex piece, but very interesting. Although Strieber's attempts to define the beings he has encountered are constantly shifting, even contradictory, this in no way invalidates his experiences. On the contrary, such uncertainty only confirms that whatever he has undergone is beyond his ability, maybe anybody's, to categorize. Strieber seems almost deliberately oblivious to how his theories conflict and even cancel each other out. Yet paradoxically, the lack of consistency to his accounts might actually be construed as evidence for their veracity. If Strieber were undergoing initiation into an alien paradigm, we would expect it to confound our every expectation. The article also goes into Strieber's conflict with author Daniel Pinchbeck on an episode of Unknown Country, which, if I think it was in 2007, if you can track it down, it is, it is, it is fun, it is wild. Pinchback really gets under Strieber's skin, and it is, uh, it, is, it is glorious to listen to. If you just like to hear people fight, it's really good. Um, and the article also touches on the possibility that Strieber might be a victim of mind control. Kifas has greatly enlarged on this for the, uh, this article for the website Reality Sandwich. He did that in 2012, and a link to it is in the show notes. Um, so uh, just anecdotally, this article would go on to appear in an enlarged form on Reality Sandwich, and Daniel Pinchbeck also was a, uh, a contributor to Reality Sandwich. So it's not necessarily a pro-Streber piece, but it's not really an anti-Streber piece. It's more of a Streber, what's the deal, sort of piece. In issue three, Paul Kimball runs down his seven wonders of the ufological world. They are, counting down, the Aetherius Society Headquarters, 
the International UFO Museum in Roswell, the International UFO Congress Convention and Film Festival, the UFO Landing Pad in St. Paul, Alberta, Canada, Rendlesham Forest, Area 51, and the Integraton slash Giant Rock. I out of I like all those. Uh, I'd quibble I'd quibble with Rendlesham, although I wouldn't have in 2008, for reasons which we'll probably discuss in our Rendlesham episode, which we will do at some point. Also, in this issue, there's an interview with Greg Bishop about government involvement in the formation of various UFO narratives, building off of Bishop's work in his book Project Beta, as well as the ongoing Serpo controversy. Bishop had this to say about the general involvement of defense and intelligence apparatuses in the UFO world. I think that the CIA and the NSA, Air Force and Naval Intelligence, anybody that could, saw an opportunity and seized upon the UFO subject as something to be used to confuse and bamboozle other agents from other countries and, to some extent, people from here as well, because agents from other countries and news people can talk to people that live here. If I'm working for the government and looking for ways to cover things up, I'm going to use anything possible. Let people believe anything as long as they don't find out what we don't want them to find out. Issue 3 also features something that uh, is a bit of a, uh, a thing that we love here at the Saucer Life. Poetry. Yes, poetry. This is a poem entitled, One Small Step for Man. When first we ventured into space, we opened a new chapter for our race. The stars and planets became our aim. The universe was ours to claim. One small step for a man became a leap. We sat enthralled and could not sleep. As pictures beamed from Tranquility Bay were viewed by us on that historic day. Though JFK, who had made that pledge, had been shot in Dallas from window ledge, so his vision he never did get to see, and now this day is just part of history. Before our planet becomes no more, we must take off again and re-explore, for the future of our human race is somewhere out there in outer space. But before we go, we should make a pledge to that man shot in Dallas from window ledge to live out there in peace and never more kill our fellow man in endless war. Michael A. Hellyer, Hessel. I am pretty sure that poem was written in iambic I-have-no-idea-meter. There's also an interview in issue three with Rich Reynolds, whose UFO blogging attracted a great deal of interest and ire back when a significant portion of the UFO world revolved around Blogspot, um, and has continued to uh, to arouse ire in, in the years since. Um, he said nice things about some stuff I wrote, so I've, I've got no issue with him whatsoever. The science coverage is still there with the usual space science, but it also expands into the world of social science, uh, featuring an interview with Diana Tuminia, a sociologist whose edited collection, which was also called Alien Worlds, had just come out. Tuminia would go on to write a book about the Unarius Society, and yes, we'll be doing a Unarius episode. Here, she discusses a bit about the religious and spiritual aspects of UFO belief. Certainly, contactee religions are waiting for specific space brothers, and if you go to the back of the book in the appendix, it tells you about these different religions. One is Aetherius, which is very old, and there's also Unarius. That is the term they use, space brothers, as well as several others. If you read on, you'll see, for example, that some people are contacting reptilian space brothers, and the oldest are what I would call Arian. They are the legacy of theosophy, and that whole imaginary psychic connection with Atlantis and different worlds and ascended masters. 
I spent a lot of time with the Unarius people, and they spent a lot of time doing psychic contact with Madame Blavatsky, as well as Einstein and Space Brothers from Venus. It's a holdover from channeling and spiritualism, and very well established in the United States. Issue 4, the magazine's final issue, although there was no real clue of it in the magazine at the time, I don't think, featured interviews with the late, great Stanton T. Friedman about why he hates SETI, say it with me, folks, silly effort to investigate, as well as journalist John Ronson about his book, The Men Who Stare at Goats, which I highly recommend. I don't know if we've covered it in one of our... um, one of our read this books episodes, but you need to read it. And don't think because you've seen the movie that you don't need to read it. You need to read it. There's also an interview with the European executive director of the Aetherius Society, sort of calling back to uh, the interview with uh, Diana Tuminia in the previous issue, alongside um, usual interviews with scientists of various stripes and coverage of pseudoscience with an article about crystal skulls, not the Indiana Jones kind. Nick Redfern is back with an article titled UFOs, Crop Circles, and Cryptids. What the hell is going on? Here, as in his previous articles for Alien Worlds, Redfern very cleverly presents an interesting article. This one is about the overlapping accounts of different flavors of paranormal events. And if you look closely, the article is carefully designed to get you to buy one of his books. In this case, a book about (laughs) UFOs, Crop Circles, and Cryptids. That's why Nick Redfern is able to make a living writing about this stuff. He's very, very, very clever about this. Paul Kimball's Above and Beyond column is about the prominence of the extraterrestrial hypothesis in ufology and why it might not be a good thing. By focusing on the idea that little green, gray men have been coming here in nuts and bolts spaceships, ET factors have done a grave disservice to the search for truth about the UFO phenomenon and its possible alien origins in the same way that thousands of years of religious leaders have undermined the search for the true nature of God by force-fitting it into a limited paradigm that simply served to reinforce their own worldview. They have not sought wisdom nor understanding. They have simply proclaimed an answer, which has been no answer at all. All in all, the blend of ufology, broader paranormal events, and science made Alien Worlds unique, if not entirely to everyone's tastes. That it didn't continue beyond four issues shouldn't be taken as a reflection on the quality of the magazine, but rather as an example of the changing media landscape of the time. Magazines have continued to shrink their footprint, have gotten more expensive at the newsstand, even as subscriptions for some are nearly at giveaway prices. Looking through these four issues again, the most striking thing is the very low level of advertising. Okay, there's almost none. The first issue has two ads, both for anomalous books. Issue two has one ad on the back cover for the musical Jersey Boys, which was playing in London at the time. I always thought that ad seemed very incongruous. Issue three has one ad on the back cover again for First Sight Graphics, which did the layout and graphics for the magazine. Issue 4 has no ads whatsoever. While this is a great value for the reader and was one of the reasons I happily plunked down my 10 bucks when I could find it, from a business standpoint, it's utterly unsupportable. So that was Alien Worlds, a great magazine with a unique point of view, edited by one of the few people in ufology you can't really find anyone saying anything bad about. Miller, very sadly, died from injuries sustained in a motorcycle accident in 2011. In the show notes are links to memories from Paul Kimball and Nick Redfern about Stewart, and I urge you to check those out. Thanks for listening. 
In the show notes are links to purchase back issues of Alien Worlds from Archives for the Unexplained. You might be able to find them elsewhere as well, but that's where I got mine. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, working for the good of mankind, along the lines of truth. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.